Hear the word of God from the book of Leviticus. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which had not been commanded of them. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elizaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. And so they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting lest you die, for the anointing of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel the statutes of the Lord. Uh, the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Would you please remain standing and um, let's uh, offer this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, um, I'm keenly aware uh, that there is a lot going on in the world and in our hearts. And uh, we're, we're sad and mad about uh, I'm heartbroken for the Afghani people and sad about Marines dying. We're sad about governmental agencies um, being broken and not working. We're sad about personal sin, systemic sin. Um, and we're just sad that even this week we've had to tell uh, I've had to receive and give hard news. I guess what I'm saying, God, is um, we're a people who need to hear from you. And um, so uh, I would ask uh, by your spirit, soften us. Uh, we want to hear from you. So come work in us uh, that we would see you with the eyes of our heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was uh, growing up, I had a really cool neighbor, a guy I really liked, a really nice kid, uh, but it was his older sister, Barbie, that's her name, uh, who caught the attention of the entire neighborhood. And she was pretty, but that's not it. Barbie tragically lost both of her arms when she was young, 
And yet she was really resourceful. I mean, she could write and draw with her feet, beautiful pictures, gorgeous handwriting. We'd play cards together, games. I mean, this girl was spectacular. What happened was when she was really young, after one of those Texas thunderstorms had gone through, some power lines fell down to the ground and the wires were still live. And you know where this is going. She went to the power lines, she grabbed them, and she was severely electrocuted. And uh, both of her arms had to be amputated. Now, when you and I hear this story, uh, it awakens our sympathy. Um, but no one's saying, you know what? Electricity is too harsh. Right? No, no one talks like that, right? And we don't say that because... We understand the inherent, unforgiving properties of electricity, right? It's why I'm like afraid of changing a light bulb in my house, right? We don't say that because we understand that electricity is not a power to be handled casually. You always proceed carefully. Well, this morning, we're continuing in the sermon series that we've called Surprised by Christ. And it's just a study, right, in the writings of Moses. And we've begun by studying Leviticus. That happened last week. And this morning, we're going to stay in Leviticus, and we're going to study about these two brothers. We just heard the story. They're both priests, Nadab and Abihu. And both of these men die when God's holy fire consumes them, right? And I would argue that this story of Leviticus 10 has some important analogies to my friend Barbie, who, um, when she grabbed those power lines. But even as I say that, even as I try to set this up, right, there are these deep cultural intuitions that make it really hard for us in this room to learn from this text. This is where, you know, people might be inclined to say, well, I... I believe God is love, or um, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. And here's the problem, is that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are the same God. And, And so we have to have a reckoning, like we have to deal with this, we have to take this seriously. But like, how did we get here though? Like, how did we get here? Because stories like Leviticus said haven't always been so off-putting. They haven't rubbed people so wrong that they're intolerable. Well, in our modern times, most of us have this implicit uh, set of um, priorities and expectations about what we think God is like. Uh, There's a sociologist, his name's Christian Smith. He summarized American evangelicalism as being a moralistic, therapeutic, Deism. So moralistic, therapeutic deism. And, and a moralistic, therapeutic deist believes that, um, that God made the world, watches over life on earth, right? He or she believes that God wants man to be a good, nice, and fair to one another, to each other. He or she believes that God's goal for humanity, his goal for humanity is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. He believes, she believes that God is not involved in his life on a day-to-day basis, but you can call upon him in uh, serious emergencies. And lastly, he or she, a a moralistic therapeutic deist, believes that uh, generally 
good people uh, go to heaven when they die, whatever that might, that might mean. So that's the theology of a moralistic therapeutic deist. And if all of what I just said makes total sense to you with no rub whatsoever, then this story of Nadab and Abihu in, Le- in Leviticus 10 is going to be absolutely intolerable. In fact, you might realize that you'll find most of the Bible intolerable. And even Jesus, when you start reading the fine print, will rub you wrong. But if that's you, I want you to be aware of these, of these frameworks that are actually keeping Jesus quite domesticated, nicely fitting into our pockets. See, this passage that we're studying this morning isn't going to make Jesus smaller. To the contrary, we're going to get more of Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament says that all of the Old Testament is like about him. We need these stories because they help unlock just the, the immensity of Jesus. Jesus, the embodied presence of God, is formidable. And I want you to know him. And I want you to know him for who he truly is. And the story of Nadab and Abihu is going to help us with this. So let me see if I can't set it up and then we'll jump into the text this morning. So what we've been saying since we started this sermon series is that, man, that, that God has built man for his presence. We are built for God's presence, but his presence is formidable. It's dangerous. We can't just run up to God because his holiness, like the sun, would incinerate us. See, to sinners, us, God's presence is a consuming fire. So God commanded Moses to, to build a house uh, a tabernacle of sorts to, to house his immediate presence. And, and so right, God moved into the neighborhood, as we talked about last week. But in order to enjoy God's presence, you have to go through this extensive preparation that includes sacrifices, priests, and purity laws. That's what, that's what the whole book of Leviticus is going to cover. And so last week, if you'll remember, we studied the sacrificial system. Leviticus chapters 1 through 7 details how to make an offering. And then in chapter 8, right after that, the priestly system is inaugurated. These priests are consecrated. And then in chapter 9, so the chapter right before the passage we heard this morning, uh, we see Aaron, who is the high priest, the chief priest, make this initial offering, and God receives it. God accepts it by consuming it with fire. Now this, what happens right before our text in chapter 9, is a huge occasion. It's like, it's like you're working on the family Christmas tree, and it's like super detailed, and there's all this, and, and there's a lot of working parts, and then you plug it in, and the lights go on, and it's, there's a kind of celebration. Or maybe that's a little trick. Maybe it's like you're trying to restore this hot rod muscle car or something. You've been working on it for like, you know, for like 10 years, and then finally... You turn the key and it roars and it purrs, right? When when God accepted the offering in chapter 9, that was a huge moment in the life of Israel. I mean, their hearts were exploding. Their optimism was abounding. But here's the thing. When they saw God's power, they got careless. Because they thought that God's power... Since it, was, since it was connected to all of this pomp and circumstance, could be controlled. 
They thought God's presence and power could be domesticated with sacrificial laws and with priestly rituals. They were wrong. God's presence is formidable. And as we're going to see in the story, both the priests and the laws are misused in this attempt to domesticate God. Both the priestly rituals and the law are insufficient. And in a way, they give false confidence. And in a way, they're misleading. And all of that has everything to do with you. And that's, what, why, that's why we're going to open up and really dig into Leviticus 10. So with that introduction, let's start with the first one, that the priestly rituals are insufficient and misleading. And then we'll look at the law, how they're insufficient and misleading. All right, let me begin with a story. When I was young, I loved He-Man. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all remember that cartoon series? Uh, I also secretly liked She-Ra, the princess of power, but I am going to limit my childhood storytelling uh, to He-Man. So um, He-Man, if you don't know, like, because you're a millennial, you're like, what? Uh, He-Man's about this guy, dressed as kind of funny, but when he grabs his sword and says, by the power of Grayskull, when he does that, he can domesticate, contain, and wield the power of the universe. Brilliant concept, right? So in my neighborhood, we all played this game we called He-Man, right? So whoever had the sword was He-Man. Everyone else is Skeletor. Thankfully, I received a sword for, from Toys R Us on my birthday, and everyone, all the kids, knew the rules. Whoever had the sword had the power. So one day I grab the sword, and I say those words. Boom. I am dominating all the kids on my street. It appeared that I had true power because all the kids had to escape and look for safety. We didn't have video games back then, you guys, so we kind of used active imaginations, all right? I know. Um, So there I am. Then, while I'm joyfully throwing my weight around with my He-Man sword, uh, my older brother comes along. Now, I have two older brothers. They're both teenagers. One is there. And I jump in front of him, and I say, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power. Stand down, peasant. <laughs> now, my brother, I reasoned, should, could surely not stand against the power of the universe that I had in my sword. So what happens next? In a matter of seconds, my brother rips that sword out of my hands and starts whipping my backside. I mean, I have welts all over my legs. I thought I had contained the power of the universe. Clearly, the power of the universe could not be controlled by a person reciting some stupid formula. I learned that day. Can I suggest to you that that silly illustration kind of describes what's happening in our passage? And let me explain how. So the day before our passage picks up, all the priests get their shiny new uniforms. They're feeling good about themselves. That same morning, Nadab and Abihu's father, Aaron, followed the precise formula to make an offering to God. And when he did it, like clockwork, as if it were at the command of Aaron's voice, an awesome fire came out and consumed the offering. That's what we're just talking about in chapter 9. It was amazing. Nadab and Abihu, 
totally impressed. Now, if their dad can wield that kind of power with that formula, man, just think of the possibilities. But instead of becoming reverent, instead of that, Aaron's two oldest sons developed a false confidence in their priestly actions. Now, why do I call it a false confidence? Well, their actions tell a story. And there are three features in the story I'm going to bring your attention to that tell us, that alert us to Nadab and Abihu's misguided confidence in their priestly functions. The first is that this story starts in a really ominous way. In verse 1, it says that these two young priests took these censers. All right, if you don't know what a censer is, they're kind of like these vessels where you put coals in there and you burn incense, okay? So they have these, these censers. They took them. And they went into the tabernacle, and the Bible says that they brought strange fire or unauthorized fire, all right? Now, that phrase unauthorized or strange fire just means that the priests are supposed to take the fire from the tabernacle. And my, when I say fire, you can't just grab plasma, right? They take the coals from the tabernacle um, and put it inside their, uh, inside their sensor. That that's where it's coming from. And the reason why that's significant is because those coals were always burning. The priests were just supposed to keep them lit day and night. But that fire, that first fire in the tabernacle was first kindled by God himself. It would be something like um, JFK's eternal flame, right, at Arlington National Fi uh, Cemetery. It's just always burning. Um, the priests, so it's important to understand that the priests didn't start that fire. It had always been burning since the world was turning. See what I did there? Thank you, Flint. Appreciate that. All right. So the Lord started the fire. The priests are maintaining it. But Nadab and Abihu used their own coals. They made their own fire. It was a foreign fire. To call it an adulterous fire would be a terrific Hebrew translation. So they wielded the strange fire like I wielded He-Man's sword. And to make matters worse, feature number two... They're totally tipsy. They've been drinking. See, verse 9, the Lord actually had to reprimand Aaron by saying, look at verse 9, drink no wine or strong drink. You or your sons with you when you go into the tent of meeting. Now, why is he having to tell them this? It's because the priests are supposed to be these mediators between God and Israel, and they're drunk. And they're going to get everyone killed. It's like, a, it's like they're, they're pilots on this Boeing 747, and it's filled with a cabin of family and all of their favorite people, and they get into the cockpit totally wasted, right? It's reckless. I mean, this isn't just bad for them. It's like risking everyone's life. And so Nadab and Abihu, once they're filled with a little bit of liquid courage and wielding this strange fire like they had God on a leash, they stumble into the innermost part of the tent. Feature number three. Verse one actually says, when it, when it, you'll see that phrase, when it says that they went before the Lord, that phrase, when they went before the Lord, what we learn is that phrase, and we learn this in chapter 16 of Leviticus, it means that they foolishly went into the holy of holies, the holiest place, and it didn't work out for them. In the same divine fire that consumed the offering that morning, this time, consumes them. It's like they're playing with like a million volts of electricity. I mean, what did they think was going to happen? God cannot be tamed with tricks masquerading as religion, you see. 
Now listen, this entire story, all of those features, when we read it, it gives insight into our own hearts. You see, Nadab and Abihu represent human impulses for relating to God. We're, we're either naively casual in approaching God, or we think we can wield his powers by, by reducing him to a formula. Like, like, do you think I'm making this up? Like, oh, Garcia, you're kind of exaggerating. Like, there's this guy in Kansas. He has this ministry called IHOP. He has written publicly that every morning while he is shaving his face, that God, a theophany, appears to him, and they just talk. I mean, he's got to be drunk to say that, because it is false. Because listen to me, if Jesus were to show up, you wouldn't finish shaving your face. You'd fall on your face in worship, you say. I mean, does he, does he know who, who this God is that we're speaking of? There is this highly problematic movement in evangelical circles. It's called Word of Faith. And they believe that a person can wield the power of faith through speech. Like, in other words, if you speak or if you declare with your mouth and if you just truly believe, you can actually, like, materialize God's power. Like, you can just control God's power. This is crazy. They're treating God like a vending machine instead of the consuming fire that he is. So we, we, we must not come to God with formulas pretending that we can contain him and get him to, to do what we want. Most of us don't have dramatic examples like the ones I just listed. But you know what? That, that intuition is still there. Have you ever um, said something like this? God, I went to church. I obeyed you. I gave you money. I served at the soup kitchen. And you let the sad thing happen. Have you ever said that? Like, I get it. Listen to me. I get the questions that we ask in the sadness of our lives. But what I want you to do is hear the hidden logic. We're trying to control God by our actions. And when God didn't pull through and respond to our actions, we become disappointed. Listen, you and I are not priests, but we're still offering strange and unauthorized fire, hoping that we can get, domesticate God and get him to do what we want. It won't work. Don't be misled. The priestly offerings of good works are insufficient. God will not be domesticated. We've really underestimated this God who we speak about. Even with our wildest imaginations, we're still underestimating him. And humility and reverence, not presumption, is how we come to the Lord, you see. So don't live pretending as if he doesn't exist or that he answers to you. Because the Lord will not be tamed. His presence is formidable. Let's move to the second point. Of this. So first, we, we looked at how the priestly rituals were insufficient and even misleading in a certain way. Now let's examine how the law itself is insufficient 
and misleading in a certain way. And, and let me begin by illustrating a kind of a similar modern phenomenon. Let's talk about the NFL. Falls upon us. National Football League. Billion dollar enterprise. Uh, this is a sport that has dramatically changed over the years. So back in the day, kids, NFL players used to wear leather helmets and no masks. I mean, that, that's really how they used to play. Um, the um, it wasn't a really dangerous thing to play with leather helmets. It's because they tackled differently. It was more like rugby tackling or something else. Uh, the sport, relatively speaking, was a simple sport. There weren't a lot of rules. But then something changed. What changed? The helmet evolved, and they started using hard shell helmets. And when this happened, for the first time, the head became a weapon. So now helmets are so sophisticated that middle linebackers could come straight at their targets using their heads to crush people. And so the NFL became a, a, a factory of producing cripples. So people are like blowing out knees, concussions are going through the roof, and this is really bad press. The players themselves, like the players union, begin to protest. And the NFL, the commissioner's office, the front office, uses their most powerful tool rule changes, right? And so every single year, the NFL adds more and more rules. And the simplicity of football from the 1950s has given way to something almost unrecognizable, right? If you have ever had a friend from outside the United States come, and you're like, hey, they're asking, hey, what is this thing you're watching? You're like, it's the NFL, and then try to teach it to them. Has anyone ever tried to teach football? It's like impossible. They're like, I don't get anything of what's going on here. It's hard. There's so many rules, and honestly, even with all of the rules, they're so vague, it's hard to know if anyone's really even complying with the rules. And so the consensus is, is that each year, slowly, the NFL is losing their audience. Why? Because there's so many rules, and the game's kind of losing some of its appeal. But here's the thing. The front office, they know that these rules aren't great, but their interest is in protecting the players, even if it changes the game. And rest assured, even as the NFL continues incredibly wealthy, there will only be more and more rules. And even with these rules, no one will ever be sure if they're being followed perfectly or if they're actually keeping players safe. You know why? Because rules cannot eliminate the human factor. All right. Got it. NFL. Sure. What? What are you talking about? Why the NFL illustration? Rules actually give a false confidence. No matter how many rules you have, they're still insufficient. That's what you have in this narrative, in this story. Even the law is insufficient and can give a false confidence confidence. If you'll remember, last week we were in Leviticus 3, we read just a small section. Y'all remember Elliot Payne up here reading it? Like, wasn't it a mouthful, Leviticus 3? I mean, there's so much detail, so much repetition, and that's just like one small section. I mean, we have pages and pages of rules, and guess what? Enough is never enough. The whole narrative is an illustration that even with all the rules I had, Nadab and Abihu needed more. I mean, think about it. In the first three verses, right, of our text, 
You have the broken rules of Nadab and Abihu. Could the rules have been more explicit? Probably. Like maybe we need some addendums if we're going to be working with high voltage scenarios. But there's more. Beginning in verse 4, Moses calls the cousins to take the bodies out of the tabernacle, all the way out of the camp. But the two younger brothers uh, of, uh, um, of Aaron, uh, uh, the other two younger brothers of Aaron, sons of Aaron, uh, Eleazar and Ithamar, in verse 6, he says, and I'll summarize it for you. Guys, make sure you have the right haircut. Make sure you're riding, wearing the right clothes. And you can't leave the tabernacle and go to the funeral of your brothers like everyone else. Why? Because if you do, you will die. Verse 7. All right? It's like, wow. You know, the brothers are like, what did I sign up for? Because apparently there are some new rules. Like, like they're in a minefield. They're in a minefield. And, and, the, answer, and the truth is they are. Like in the, the presence of God is like this minefield. It's dangerous. I mean, you could die at any second. And the reason that these two guys couldn't go to the funeral is because if they did, they would be in the proximity of two dead co- corpses. And, and by definition, you know, that's what funerals are. You're around the body of the deceased. And by being by the corpse, that makes a person unclean. Unclean. Now look just real quickly at verses 10 and 11 in your Bibles. It's verse 10, it says, You are distinguished between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Now, I, another day I'll do the long version of how all of this works, but let me give you the Cliff's notes of verses 10 and 11. Being unclean is a state. Right? It's not a sin. Being unclean is not a sin. It's a state. And so if you are in the state of unclean, it doesn't mean that you're inherently bad. It just means that you're not fit to be in the presence of God in the tabernacle. And so to move from unclean to clean, you had to follow a few more rules, do a few more rituals, and then you could be in the clean state, and then you could enter the tabernacle. But if you rushed into the tabernacle in your unclean state, you would die. Now remember, everyone knows you can't just approach a holy God any way you want. And that's what that warning about, lest you die in verse 7, is all about. Here's the tension of the text. The deaths of Nadab and Abihu are just the beginning. I mean, the rest of the Old Testament is like more rules, more death. And strangely, strangely, this text is teaching every Jew... That although the law is necessary, it is insufficient. There will never be enough rules. And the rules are not the goal. The rules are not what give you life. The rules can't save you. It's the God who these rules point to. And so if the rules can't, if the rules can't save you, then like what's the point? Like, what's the point? In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who's a good Jew, reads the writings of Moses, well acquainted with them, he responds to this, like, in this way. This is Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 19. I'll read it for you. He asks the question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that is the Messiah, should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place by an intermediary. Verse 21, 
Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, he says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law until imprisoned by the coming faith that would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our tutor, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian, we're no longer under the tutor. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons through faith. And here's what this means. In some strange way, the law created the pseudo-protective barrier, like a fence. Now, even back then, everyone, even a good Jew, was meant to long for something more. Like a Jew is not supposed to fall in love with a fence, right? It had a purpose, but it wasn't the point. And this story, the strange story in Leviticus, demonstrates the insufficiency of the law to give us what we really want, what we really crave. Because if the law was the point then what you need is more laws and more laws, right? But the law is not the point. It's supposed to stir in you, and I hope that's what the story is doing, this uneasiness deep in your soul and that will only be satisfied when you rest in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus fulfills the law and offers you security in the minefield of the presence of God. Are you listening to me? This is a lot. This is dense. Some of you have been living your entire Christian life as if it were just a bunch of rules that you have to fulfill so that God likes you. And if you live like that, then your joy is just one misstep away from being wiped out by like 1,000 volts of electricity, right? I mean, just one little bit of suffering. And so your spiritual life probably feels like this minefield that could just explode at any time. But even as we read this strange story, you're supposed to read it and say, my goodness, like, my goodness, the rules can't be enough. It just can't be. There has to be more. There, there's just too many gaps, right? Should I ask for more rules to fill in the gaps? Like, ah, I'm exhausted. God, can you please come and rescue me from these rules? The only thing that these rules show me is that I can't do it. I'm one misstep away from dying. And that is the point. If that is where God has you, then you're starting to believe the gospel. Lord, I can have no security, no confidence in my own ability to follow the law. The law accuses me. I need you lest I die. And in that moment, if you can say that and mean it, the heavy burden slips away and slowly security emerges. What is your relationship with Christ like? Is it heavy and burdensome? Or is it secure and burning with optimism? 
let this unnerving and all the unnerving details of this strange story shake out that tension in, in, in your soul. Like, let it do what it's supposed to do. All right, let me, let me conclude. So this, this story, it's put there to show you the insufficiency of the priestly rituals and the insufficiency of the law. And we're not supposed to find much confidence in those things. That's how the story works. But do you remember how we began the sermon series two weeks ago? Um, we said that Jesus is explicit, that every story in the writings of Moses is really preparing us to know him. That's what Jesus says. And so how so? Well, the main character in this story is not Nadab and Abihu. Who is it? It's Aaron, the father, right? Aaron is the father of Nadab and Abihu, and he's a guy with some history, right? He's the one with the bright idea to make the golden calf, right? We talked about this while Moses was up on the mountain with, on Mount Sinai talking to God, right? We remember that. God probably should have killed him. He didn't. God was preparing Aaron to be the high priest of Israel. And the high priest, if you're the high priest of Israel, you must know your God intimately, right? And after Aaron's sons died, he said, look with me there in verse 3. He says, among those who are near to me, so the near ones are the mediators, the priests, among those who are near to me, I will be sanctified. That just means like all the impure things will be purged. And before all the people, those are the far ones, that's the rest of Israel, the non-priests, he says, I will be glorified. They will know me. They will know their God. Right? That's what, that's what it's saying. So because of the death of Aaron's sons, the people were spared of their own sins and death. Nadab and Abihu disobeyed. Aaron knew it. That's how come he held his peace. That's why it says he held his peace. And he didn't try to debate it with God. He didn't try to accuse God. And then, of course, Nadab and Abihu's bodies, which were now profaned, were removed out of the camp. You see that? Let me suggest to you that this episode taught Aaron about his God, about his heavenly father, who would also lose a son in the same way, but in a way that was far more unjust. I mean, just think about it. Aaron's sons disobeyed. They're killed, taken out of the camp, and their death allowed the far ones, the people, to live. God's son obeyed and was killed outside of the camp. And his death, as well, allowed the far ones, the people, to live. In Hebrews chapter 13, he's dialed into this. The author says this. He says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside of the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's preparing us to know him. Don't be put off by this story. Let it stir in our soul the way it's designed to. These ancient narratives teach us about Jesus, how we need him desperately, that 
We might walk with him in gratitude and security. Don't let your faith be about staring at fences. I hope it's about peeking over those fences and seeing this untamed, all-consuming fire, the formidable presence of God in Jesus Christ, who is for you. Who is for you. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand how these really uncomfortable stories work in our hearts. They are really uncomfortable, but Lord, don't let us dismiss it. We want to know you. Help us to relate to you properly through Jesus Christ. Amen.